Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for worship and fellowship and gathering, Lord. We thank you that we can come together as your people and be encouraged and lifted up and taught and we can understand all the more what you have for us to know. We give this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. There's a story of a little boy who decided he wanted to go and meet God. And he knew that it was a long journey. And so he packed for himself a suitcase of root beer and Twinkies. And off the front, out the front door he went. Well, he walked about three blocks and he started to get tired. And he saw a park and he thought, you know, I'll go sit down for a while and rest. And so he made his way over to the park bench. And there sitting at a park bench was this old man who was paying attention to the pigeons. Well, he pulled out his root beer because he was thirsty, and just before he was about to drink, he, he saw that the, the old man looked hungry. And so he decided to offer the old man a Twinkie. The old man accepted it and gave him a smile. And the boy really loved his smile. So he thought, I want to see that smile again. And so he offered him a root beer. And this time the man accepted it and gave him an even bigger smile. And throughout the afternoon, they sat there eating Twinkies and drinking root beer, not really talking much. Well, it started to get dark, and the boy was feeling tired and realized he probably should go home. And so he packed up his suitcase, and he began to walk away, but he didn't make it three steps before he put down his suitcase, ran back over, and gave the man a big hug. This time, the old man gave him the biggest smile he had ever seen. Well, as he walked through the door, of course, his mother was very concerned that he had been gone afternoon, but she saw such a big smile on his face, she asked him, what did you do today? He said, I spent the day with God. And you know, he has the most beautiful smile you've ever seen. Meanwhile, the old man went home, and as he walked through his door, his son was there to meet him, and he saw this big smile on his father's face. He hadn't seen him smile like this in a long time. And he said, Father, why are you smiling so much? Why are you so joyful? And he said, I had lunch today with God. We ate Twinkies and drank root beer. <laughs> the son looked at him and he said, and you know, he's much younger than I thought. <laughs> First John 4.12 says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. We can see God through the love that we share with one another. See, Paul had never met the Colossians, but the church in Colossae had come about indirectly through his ministry, and he was very concerned about what was going on there. And so he decided to write this letter to the church. He wanted to encourage them and strengthen them and build them up. He wanted them to see all the more what God is like knowing that if they saw God and experienced the love of God, that they would share then that with others around them. So, even though Dennis read for us the first 10 verses of chapter 2, let's again start with the first five verses. And whenever you see yellow, please read with me. Paul says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, 
in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by spine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Have you ever noticed how many people in our world are discouraged or frustrated or downcast? You know, I meet people like this all the time. I don't know why it surprises me, but it often does. But I feel like God has given me the gift of encouragement. So whenever I meet a person who's frustrated, discouraged, or downcast, struggling, my inclination is to encourage them, to try to build them up in the Lord. You know, it's pretty easy, actually, to give encouragement to people, right? You encourage them by sending them a nice email or by giving them a hug, offering them a smile or sharing a kind word or a compliment. It's really easy to encourage, and it's amazing how it really impacts people's lives when you just encourage them in the Lord, when you just say, I care about you, what's going on? See, the Apostle Paul wanted the Colossians to be encouraged, encouraged in their hearts. Why? Why did he want this? Because he knew that for them to continue to grow in their faith, and we talked about that last week at the end of chapter two, or chapter one, and for them to bear fruit, which we talked about two weeks ago, he knew that if they were discouraged in their faith, then they would not be able to grow in Christ. They would not be able to be the examples in Christ. They would not be able to love others around them. See, those who are discouraged struggle to move forward in their faith. They, they focus too much on what, that which is discouraging them instead of focusing on Jesus Christ. Along with this, you cannot stay in your discouragement and hope to cope with all the things that come to you at life. I mean, think about what happens in life, right? So many things can cause you more discouragement. So if you're already discouraged and these things come into your life, then it's just going to weigh you down more and more. And Paul didn't want to see the Colossians let their discouragement control them. Because if it did, then they would lose and discouragement would win. They would lose and Satan would win. Because it would keep them from being the people that God created them to be. It would keep them from being fruitful in their lives as God was calling them to be. And that is true for us. If we are lost in our discouragement, then we can't be the people God calls us to be. We can't encourage and love people the way God calls us to do that. We must be a people of God, a church of God that is encouraged in our hearts and that is encouraging others. But along with that, Apostle Paul wanted the Colossians to be united in love. A number of years ago, when I think Tiffany was about 10 and Tyler was about 12, we decided to go to Mammoth. They had never skied before. Tyler wanted to learn how to snowboard. Tiffany wanted to learn how to ski. And so we went to Mammoth. We thought, you know, that's a, that's a great place to learn. If you've ever been there, you know, they have huge, huge mountains, big, wide slopes, you know, so it's a really good place to learn. And so we went there, and we decided we were going to teach, teach them how to do this. And so we went up on the easy slope, and we began to, to ski. And Tiffany got skiing down no problem. In fact, she, she didn't even need to stop. She just went like this, and she just like pointed down the, the hill, and boom, she was there, right? 
Tyler, on the other hand, you know, snowboarding, if you know anything about snowboarding, is a little more difficult to snowboard. He was getting frustrated. He was falling a lot. But all of a sudden, he got it. And so by, by near the end of the morning, they were, Tiffany was skiing pretty well, and Tyler was snowboarding. And we had done this slope so many times that we decided we were going to go over and try the blue slopes, right? The little bit harder ones. So we went over there, and we were doing that. A little more difficult, and they, they struggled a little bit. They were doing well still. But after a while, Tiffany said, you know, I want to go back to the easy slopes. So now we had a dilemma. Tiffany wanted to go to the easy slopes, and we wanted to stay on the more difficult ones. And we were there as a family, and we didn't want to, you know, be disunified. We wanted to be unified together. Plus, she's only 10 years old. We're not going to send her to a slope all by herself as a 10-year-old, right? So we decided that we would have lunch. <laughs> right? A good compromise, right? This can happen in church as well, right? When people want to go in different directions, they are not united. But if we focus on love, loving one another, and loving those outside our church walls, then we are united because we have a unified purpose. Without love for one another, you cannot have a church. Without being unified in purpose, purpose and direction, you cannot have a fruitful church. Now, that doesn't mean that you're never going to have differences of opinion. You are going to have differences of opinion, but what it means is to be unified in love is to, to work together on the direction that God has for you to figure out what is God's will for us and then go in that direction. In the end, after lunch, we decided to ski the, the easier slopes for a while, and then we finished on the more difficult slopes. And I think at that point, we let uh, Tiffany kind of hang out in the lunch place while we, we finished off. We compromised, right? Compromising is an important aspect to being unified in love. As a church, it is good to understand God's will and then compromise together to make sure that that will gets accomplished. But thirdly, the Apostle Paul wanted the Colossians to understand the treasure of the wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ. While at face value, these words, knowledge and wisdom, can seem to be the same, they are actually different words. The knowledge that Paul is talking about is critical knowledge, and it's the ability to assess a situation and decide on an appropriate course of action. That doesn't mean you act on it. That just means you decide what is the appropriate course of action. That is the knowledge that you have. Okay? But wisdom, on the other hand, is the ability to confirm the truth once it is grasped. And then not just confirm it, but confirm it in a way that causes you to know how to act. So, wisdom helps you confirm that your faith is true so that you can live with confidence that your direction is right so that you can walk with courage and that your understanding of God's will is on point so that you can go forth with conviction. Do you follow that? So you can understand a situation. Without wisdom, you struggle to carry it out. You can grasp God's will, but without God's wisdom, you fail to put it into action. You probably know people who are very wise or seem very wise, but actually they're just knowledgeable. They have a lot of knowledge, but they don't always act 
wisely, right? They don't always make good choices. And you look at them, you're like, wow, you're, you're so smart, but yet sometimes you make the, the silliest decisions. You go in, in crazy directions, and yet you have all this knowledge. In a spiritual sense, it's even more true. Without wisdom, we might know what the Bible tells us to do, but we get sidetracked by false statements or by worldly ways, and we don't act wisely. Somehow we have the knowledge, but then we think that the world's ways are wise, and we begin to follow what the world says. Paul tells us this, that this knowledge and wisdom are made known to us in Christ. You know, today is the day of Pentecost. I don't know if you know that. Pentecost, pentam means 50. So 50 days after Easter, in the book of Acts, if you remember when we went through that, 50 days after Easter, they had the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and they were filled with the Spirit, and it changed the church forever. Today is Pentecost Sunday, as we remember God pouring out His Spirit upon His people. And as we talk about wisdom, we need to understand that it is the Holy Spirit who pours out His Spirit into us so that we can have not only the knowledge, but the understanding of how to apply that spiritual knowledge so that we can act in the way that God wants us to act, that we can be the people, the followers of Christ that God wants us to be, only because the Spirit is with us and resides in us. So first, as we're talking about the fullness in Christ this morning, fullness in Christ comes from the encouragement, unity, and wisdom we receive in Christ and through the filling of the Spirit. But then we look at our, the second part of our passage. Again, read the yellow with me. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built in, up in him. Oops, we lost it. Well, I guess I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Oh, there it is. Okay. Where did we say? Uh, Rooting and build up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through a hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So Paul is teaching the Colossians here, and he lifts up the idea of them not being taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Again, this goes back to the world's ways. A lot of times it seems right, seems wise, but it's really hollow and deceptive when you really get down to seeing what it's about. So there are many teachings in the world that are false, and I'm not going to have time to, to deal with them all. So I'm only going to focus on how it differs from Jesus. Paul talks much about Christ, focuses on Christ, so let's focus on Christ. Think about all the different religions in our world. A lot of people think all the religions are good. Now, if you're talking about that religions maybe make people a little nicer, maybe try to make them behave a little better, maybe they have some goodness to them, in that way. But we must understand that all religions are not good. In fact, this is why Jesus came to the earth and why Jesus died on the cross for us. 
Now, when I say religions, I'm not talking about all the, the many different kinds of denominations like Baptist and Episcopal and Methodist and even Catholicism. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about religions that do not talk about Jesus Christ, do not believe in Jesus Christ being needed as a Savior. Jesus, who is the Christ, God in the flesh, the preeminent one, the one who gives us salvation. This is the Jesus I'm talking about. Religions that don't talk about this kind of Jesus are religions like Hinduism and Buddhism and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, just to name a few. Again, it's a, the key is what do they say about Jesus? See, the problem is, the reason why they're deceptive is because they are well thought out, right? They're well thought out, and there are many who are followers in these other religions. Religions, And so you look at it, how could all these people be wrong, right? And above that, we live in a world that says that uh, we're supposed to be tolerant of all religions, and we're supposed to honor all, all religions, and we're supposed to uphold all beliefs as if they're good. Now, I'm not telling you to go and attack people who are not Christian. And I'm not even telling you to go argue with people who are not Christian. That is not the point, and that is not the goal. There's a great verse in 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. Read the yellow with me. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Gently instructed. Conversations in love. Just trying to point out the differences, point out the important aspect of who Jesus is. They've been deceived and not even realized most of the time that they're deceived. They've been taken captive by Satan so that they can do his will by promoting a different agenda, a different belief, a different philosophy. And it's destructive. You see, the problem with other religions is there's no connection between their God, and us as people. Along with this, there's no assurance of salvation. There is no Savior. For example, there are Muslims who believe that they can kill themselves and the infidels around them, and an infidel is anyone who's not a Muslim, and that by doing that, they will go to heaven. There's Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that they can commit a sin, a certain sin, and they will lose their salvation. And these are the kind of teachings that happen in all these other religions because salvation is based on works, not on a savior. See, the difference between the other religions and Christianity is what they believe about Jesus, who they believe Jesus to be, and how it differs with the Bible, how it differs with what Jesus himself taught about himself. See, Paul wants us to understand rightly who Christ is and the role that he holds in our world, in our lives, and in eternity. He specifically tells us that Jesus is God when he says in Colossians 2.9, read with me, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. One of the mysteries about the Christian faith is Jesus, the Son of God, is fully God, 100% God and fully human, 100% human. And we have trouble understanding that because it's like no one else is like that. Only Jesus was ever like that, right? 
It's so far beyond what we can understand because it's not like we encounter normally. But Jesus, all the fullness of the deity, lives in bodily form. This is so important to understand this. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. Christ is fully God in the flesh. The truth is, the only thing we need for salvation is Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Our works do not save us. Being an American does not save us. Being in a Christian family does not save you. Being rich or powerful or, or famous or, or successful does not save you. The only thing that saves you, the only thing that saves me, is having faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord. If Christ was not God in the flesh, his death on the cross would not save us from our sins, and we would not have salvation. But Christ is God in the flesh, the perfect one who took on the penalty of our sins unto himself and paid the penalty for us and provided us the reward of salvation. There's a wonderful poem called The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Brooks Welsh, and it says this, "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth its while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bid, good people?' he cried. "'Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I take two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now I bid for this old violin, as he held it aloft with its bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game as he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. See, the beautiful thing about who Jesus is, is Jesus comes to us and we're battered and bruised, and we're looked at by people as if we're worth, worth nothing. And Jesus comes in, and he fills us with his fullness, with his goodness, with his love. He, he fills us with his spirit. He, he gives us gifts. He, he makes us worthy of honor. He makes us capable of doing mighty and powerful things. He, he enables us to change the world, all because of the touch of the master's hand, of the filling up of our lives with the fullness of Christ. Think about your life. Day after day you work or you go to school or you take care of the kids, you pay your bills, you overcome sickness, you deal with depression, you struggle with having enough energy to make it through the day, you engage in conflict, you try to make sense of a confusing world. 
But how about this? In Christ, you are daily encouraged, encouraged in heart, united in love, given wisdom and knowledge, and you're given strength in faith to overcome the deceptive philosophies of the world. You're filled with the fullness of Christ. This is what we have available to us. This is the kind of life we can live, to have this in our life, instead of the drudgery and the, the, all the downward thinking that we have in life. Christ picks us up, fills us with his fullness, reminds us that we are loved and worthy and wonderful and blessed and empowered. Isn't that the kind of life you want? Let us pray.